When you first traveled to Germany as an exchange student, almost 40 years ago, you could not have known then that you were embarking on an international experience that would span decades and lead to the creation of your most unique exchange between some of the most famous museums in the world. You are listening to 2233, a podcast of exchange stories. One thing that really sort of defines me, I think, now is art is life. And beauty was integrated into all aspects of life there um, in a way that I'd never seen in the United States. Whether it was the house that was being built, the table that was being laid, the clothing that was being put on, every individual object had meaning. And it was an expression of who you were and who you are or what you like. And just because one person liked one thing and someone else didn't like it, didn't denigrate it. That's how I ended up in the arts, I have to say, was I had a whole nother definition of what was art. I learned the art of life. This week, tracing the stories of objects of art, jumping between East and West Berlin, and creating the conditions for museums to do the right thing. Join us on a journey from Iowa and Michigan to Germany, and back again, and again, and again, to learn the art of life. It's 2233. We report what happens in the United States, warts and all. These exchanges shaped who I am. When you get to know these people, they're not quite like you. You read about them. They are people very much like ourselves. And oh, that's what we call cultural exchange. Ooh, yes. My name is Jane Malosh. I'm currently the director of the Smithsonian Provenance Research Exchange Program, which is nested within the Office of International Relations at the Smithsonian. It's a program that started about three years ago, and I am delighted to be leading it into its final event this fall. My first exchange student experience was at a, as a Rotary Exchange student, and I was in Gütersloh in northern Germany. The second program was the uh, Fulbright-Hayes um, Fellowship Program, which they have for people who are done with your undergraduate, heading into graduate school, you can apply for a year to study uh, overseas. And I did that at the Ludwig Maximilian Universität in Munich for a year and also worked at the Munich Art Academy as well. I was assigned to oversee the Smithsonian's Holocaust-era provenance research project. 20 years ago, we were mandated to look at our collections and see and make sure we didn't have anything that had passed through hands illegally during the Holocaust. Looting has happened throughout all time, history and culture. It's when objects are removed from their original origin of context through either natural disaster, through wars, for a variety of reasons, things are removed. And so these objects dispersed around the world. 
And when you are the head of a museum and you have a public collection, it's your duty to know where these objects came from. And your job is to tell the story of those objects. And provenance research is about um, object biographies, in a sense, telling about that work of art from the time of its creation or cultural object from the time of its creation to tracing the history to the present. Uh, the hands that it passed through, the places that it traveled, the documents where it documents its travel. It's a very fascinating story. And for art museums, I believe this is very important and exciting because it's what connects us to the art. I mean, that's what makes the art matter, is that it's of deeper importance than the substance from what it's, it's a ceramic object, it's a silver object. No, it has a story. Somebody made it, somebody gave it to someone, or someone sold it, and someone had exhibited, and it traveled a variety of paces. Why did it do it? Was it a great piece of art? Was it something that just had a great pedigree because of who chose to own it and share it or not share it, kept it hidden? It's really tracing the history of ownership from the time of creation to the present, and more importantly, connecting human beings with those objects and those cultural stories. The thing that makes the Holocaust-era art provenance research so complicated are a variety of things, but the looting to the scale at which it was done was so enormous, and the destructions of human lives was so enormous, so that it makes piecing back the stories of the history of the looting that occurred during the Nazi era extremely difficult. Thankfully, uh, some people were able to leave Germany, escape from Germany, and many of these are arti were artists, writers, composers, collectors, dealers, and they started their lives anew in the United States. Some of them just they had to leave everything behind. Some are still trying to get things back. And then um, some, some, some people lost their lives. That's the most tragic thing. And I think that's, that's the thing that everyone felt immediately after the war. I think you, we're happy to be alive. But then there's this attempt to, to really right the wrongs of the past as much as we can. We can't right them all, but we certainly try to address it through our study of the past. And when it comes to museums, what we own, we should be telling these stories. What can we learn from it today? What does this mean? And, and that's really powerful stuff. It's very powerful stuff. And so it contextualizes the object and the people and, and the facts. As an as a administrative program director, I had this opportunity to create something. I had a great mentor, Dr. Richard Curran, who is the ambassador at large at the Smithsonian. He encouraged me to pursue whatever I needed that I thought would improve our Holocaust-era provenance research work at the Smithsonian. And I had a senior advisor named Lori Stein, who had had a lot of German American exchange experience as well. So I went to Germany with her and it made me think about my German American exchange experience that we needed to be working together and talking about the idea of this exchange. And she kept saying, what's the scholarly purview here? What's the research topic? I'm like, there is no topic. It's just about the people. And I said, look, there's so much work getting done in Germany on the Holocaust era. People here 
are doing it, but they want to do more, but they don't know how. They don't know who to turn to. How do we share this confidential information? But we don't have any money. We need we need big money. And so Bertrand von Moltke, he, I think he was the cultural attaché at the time, said, oh, I know just the fund. And he sits down to his computer and he types something and he goes, the German program for transatlantic encounters. And I said, I have never heard of that. And he goes, I know, because it's only available in German and you, they don't have a website. This was an offshoot of money from the Marshall Plan that was there to promote exchange around things involving World War II, post-war, and about promoting good stories, media, impacting the public, engaging students. And so that began the journey. And I, I was so amazed because, I'll just say this, being in Washington, I, I was told when I arrived in Washington, don't tell people your, your ideas too soon because they'll shut it down before it happens. <laughs> Well, luckily, I wasn't that jaded at that point, or maybe I just didn't care. We just started telling people our idea, and then my colleague said, it's got to be Berlin. It's the um, Berlin State Museums, the Prussian Cultural Foundation, are the two largest cultural institutions in the world. So we formed a partnership with them. So we got the seven partners together, which now include the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, the Getty Research Institute in LA, uh, the Berlin State Museums, the Dresden Art Galleries, as well as Munich, uh, the Institute for Kunstgeschichte, which is the preeminent place for art history. And we launched it in 2017 at the MAT. What it does is bring colleagues together to meet once a week in Germany and once a week in the US and discuss these issues around Holocaust-era provenance research. I thought that I would get going over there as a Rotary Exchange student. I, I, th I definitely got what I thought I was going to get over there, which was I wanted to speak German fluently and without an accent. So by the time I left, that was pretty closely true. But I had no idea um, the education I would get to another culture, to human beings that were kind to me, that didn't have to be kind to me, families. So I, I got to be a part of four different people's families. And that's a really amazing thing. Nobody has to invite you into your home. And the seriousness in which all of this was taken, this wasn't anything light. This was not a light decision like, oh, let's just have an American come. It was, Let, let's invite someone into our home. Uh, let's learn more about America. So it was a very unbelievably intimate experience. The patience with which they answered all of my questions, but hearing their side of what happened during World War II, um, how it impacted their lives, their families, far more complex than I had ever could have imagined. They changed my life. If I can do a small percentage of what they gave me, in fact, I had the pleasure of telling them that recently when I started this German-American exchange for museum professionals that my experience with you opened up my world. I think that what always astonished me and what I do now at the Smithsonian all the time is I deal in philanthropy in the sense we have these cultural institutions that benefit m many other people because some individuals who have been blessed with a lot of things decide they, they want to share them with other people. It feels good to share. And that's exactly what happened there as an exchange shoot, 1982 to 83. The 
second host family I lived with, as I said, they didn't have any children. Well, they did. They were gone. And so I just kind of became an only child, which was kind of fun because I grew up with four kids. We were all a year apart. So suddenly all of their attention was on me. It was great. And I walked into their house for the first time and I looked to the right and I saw this big photograph of a huge sailboat, essentially a yacht, a big boat. And uh, I said, wow, that's a beautiful picture, thinking it was like a photograph of someone's boat. And they're like, oh, that's our, are you seaworthy? And I just said, yes, of course, I'd never been on a sailboat. As it turns out, they were big sailors and they had a sailboat on uh, the northern island of Fehmarn in Germany. And so through the summer, we sailed the Baltic Sea. And I'll never forget when we sailed into Stockholm, Sweden, and I thought, no one would believe that not only did I sail into Stockholm, Sweden on this beautiful boat with all of these Germans, we docked right near the art museum. I got out of the boat, walked into the art museum, stepped into the museum, and I thought, gosh, I wonder whatever happened to our high school Swedish stage student Arne who lived with Julie. I look up and there is Arne. How is that possible? That very moment, I mean, and that's the lesson. Anything can happen at any moment. But the chances of me ever meeting him, I wasn't supposed to have this family. How would I be on a sailboat? We had a storm. We were delayed getting into the harbor. And I hadn't communicated with Arnie in a long time, but he was one of the reasons we had a lot of exchange students in our high school. And so there he was. And then my host parents said, would he like to sail with us? And I thought, he said, sure. So it's, I just thought, if my friends back home knew that I was sailing in this boat into Sweden, into Stockholm, hanging out with Arne, nobody would believe it. <laughs> For the Fulbright, I stayed with Frau and Herr Kortzius. They began to refer to me as their daughter, and then they met my other Fulbrighter, and she was the daughter. They also had a, um, a summer winter house in Mittenwald, and so they said, well, you have to come to Mittenwald with us. I'm like, okay, where I learned to, to mountain climb, to cross-country ski. They literally, within a month, took me into their family. Because we were in Bavaria, there was also a long tradition of a partnership between the art history and the forestry department. And so they would have an Ausflug, a little exchange, in which the art historians would go to some um, area of Bavaria and talk about the Baroque churches in that town, sort of deconstruct them and talk about them. And then the forestry students would take us into the forest and tell us about the history of the woods. It was absolutely fascinating. But again, if you look at the origins of Gothic architecture and also even the Bavarian Baroque, it comes from the place, from the architecture of the place, which is the landscape and it's the trees and it's the nature. So only the Germans, only in Bavaria does this thing still exist. And I'll never forget because they had one of those huge Bavarian yacht horns and it was huge and long. And they all decided that I was going to be the spokesperson for the art historians, I think they just got such a kick out of that, that this American was along. So I actually had to thank the forestry students on behalf of all the art historians. And then I got to play the pipe, <laughs> I mean, below the the, the, the Yachthorn. It was amazing standing in this remote area of Bavaria. And I'm the only American for a mile. I mean, it just, it just so surreal, surreal. 
I mean, really, they those guys have deep lungs, but if you're climbing up and down all those mountains all the time, you build up a lot of lung power. I had to make a choice to continue on in studio art or embrace art history, and we were having our art history classes for the first time in museums. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, I never thought about who put those paintings on the wall or put those objects there. And, and I just fell in love with art history standing in front of the object with other people. A great art exhibition, actually, if it's done well, brings those objects and stories so much to life that you, you forget, in a sense, where you are because you're walking through a visual story. All of these objects have relation and scale to human beings and who we are. The first thing that I felt very proud about being a Fulbrighter studying art history was when we actually had to give our first um, presentation in front of a, a Paul Clay painting in the museum. And uh, it was in a color theory class. So the idea was sort of to deconstruct the color that Paul Clay used in the painting. And then uh, what was the artist trying to achieve? What was the impact? And I was really nervous because I'd never done that in front of my fellow uh, students. I'll never forget standing in front of that painting and giving my talk and then leading a conversation about it. And it went like twice the length and nobody made me feel uncomfortable. It, it was just such a powerful feeling that I had the command of the language, not only um, in the sense of just being able to speak and talk it and read it, but to actually communicate another, another thing, something beyond um, what the impact of Paul Clay's artwork and why. So there was the analytical and the intuitive. And that to me was a real triumph to be able to communicate that. And I would say that continues to also drive my work in the arts as I have a great love of art and science. While I had art history in Munich, our Fulbright meeting was in Berlin, and it was still east and west, and I was in uh, one of the museums in Dahlem waiting for a phone, and there was a long line, as there often was, and there was some woman ahead that was just in discourteous towards everybody, and so she just stayed on forever. So I finally got on, and I thought, okay, I'm calling my German host sister, and we spoke German and English back and forth, and so I explained, well, there's a lot of people behind on, we'll just, it's done. And the next person came up, she goes, are you German or American? I said, I'm American. She goes, do you know, are you an art historian? You're in a museum. I said, well, as a matter of fact, I'm a studying artist, uh, studying art history. I'm in Munich. She goes, do you need a job? I said, well, we can't really work, but we have a break coming up. She goes, well, the State Department needs German artist, American art historians to tour people through this new exhibit in East Berlin. And I said, she goes, do you want me to see if they still need people? I said, Yes. The next day, I interviewed with the State Department representative. Then it turns out I was able to stay in someone's apartment in Berlin. And so I went over every day for uh, a month between East and West Berlin. And it, it was amazing because my German host family had a family that they were friends with in East Berlin. So I got to hang out with them because I had a special passport through the State Department. So it was a rare thing. While I didn't have any money to travel in Eastern Europe like all my other friends who were Fulbrighters, 
I ended up working in East Berlin for a month and actually spending time with a family. When we went back to Berlin to start this German-American foundation, I was in buildings that that I could remember from the East, the whole thing. So it's it's really, for me, the fact that we ended up partnering with Berlin is a full circle. Through my Fulbright, it was working with the Fulbright director there to help form and shape this thing. But the Rotary Exchange student taught me this uh, uh, the important thing of also being able to laugh together and just be together, not always intensely. And the Holocaust, a horrible thing. Hor- How do you even start with that? But when you meet other human beings, you can start to share stories of other kind, and then you develop trust, and then you you can share things through that trust. was very gray. Everything was very gray, but people were moving anyways. I I didn't think people were suffering, but I didn't understand why. I mean, I I couldn't imagine what it would be like standing in line. Everything felt frozen in time. And at the same time, if I didn't work with these individuals and I just did my job and left, I wouldn't have gotten to know the joy of music, playing with the children. It sounds all very simple, but still, Berlin was such a great city remnants of these buildings the museum still existed but it was just a strange place you just you you didn't feel safe you didn't feel free every time you went over the border you didn't know what was going to happen Friedrichstrasse is where I went over every day, and it just so happens that's next to uh, one of the main administration buildings. So I spent so much time at that exact same location, and that was surreal because now it's totally hustling and bustling. That part of East Berlin looks like New York in certain ways because they built it all new based on a whole new model. I just sometimes can't believe I'm in East Berlin until I look up at that train station. I realize, oh my gosh, that's where the German dog, German Shepherd was sniffing through and all the different things, it just, and the streetcar is still there. That's the other thing. Oh, Munich was all sunshine. Munich was big blue skies, uh, Music, music all the time, markets, flowers. They have an amazing outdoor market every time. Beautiful churches. I've done a lot of architectural tours, given architectural tours of Munich churches, the whole integration of faith and art and life. And and because Ludwig I really laid out Munich to be like the new Athens, the new Greece, but not in a classical way, in a very Baroque classical way, as it turns out. Yeah, it's like an outdoor museum. I fell in love with Munich. After those intense years, it almost takes a year to unpack what happened. 
I just knew that I didn't want to just do what everybody told me I was supposed to do. I wanted to figure out what I wanted to do next. I took a job in the art history department at the University of Michigan part-time, and it was actually someone there said, actually said to me, um, she said, you've had so many German-American experiences, you'd be a great museum person. And I said, you know, I've always wanted to work in museums. I still didn't know how do you bring that about. I didn't have any connections in that way. And so she called the DIA and she said, you know what, they have a job for for curatorial uh, uh, assistant. And I said, okay, well, I'll go down. And uh, lo and behold, I met two mentors who really guided me, put me on the path of, of museums. One was Jan van der Mark. He was Dutch. I'll never forget my interview because he looked at my CV and he saw fluent in German and he started laughing and going, you Americans, you always exaggerate everything. And so he just started speaking to me in German and I just started speaking back. He goes, by God, you're hired. <laughs> I just fell in love with that work. It was, it was amazing. I felt so lucky to do it. They felt lucky to do it. Everyone felt lucky to do it. I still feel lucky of all the things that I've done because it's not about me, it's about these cultural objects. When we do our provenance research exchange programs. We have these public programs and we really want to integrate survivor families who are trying to find their, their collection. But in Dresden, there was a Jewish family that had been the major collectors of mice and porcelain. And um, they were a large family of nine and everything was confiscated from them. Um, luckily, they amazingly, they all got out with their lives, the family, the immediate family. But of course, they left the collection behind. And some of the family immigrated to Australia. Well, after the reunification, they were able to contact the family and say, we have your property at the Porcelain Museum. What would you like us to do with this? And they said, we want you to hold on to it only if you promise to tell the story. They gave their entire Porcelain collection back to the Dresden State Art Museums, the very place that took it from them, the very spot. That is so unbelievably moving. And then years later, they found that there were some broken shards that had been left over that came out that they found. They called the family again and said, We've, we found these shards. And they said, well, go ahead, send us the shards. And a young woman in South Africa, where the family had also immigrated to, got these shards, and it started a whole journey for her to reconnect with her family that was dispersed. And this is all over porcelain. And I should say what's amazing was this family lived with their porcelain collection in their house. This wasn't like something you stored in America. We think of collectors as hoarders, in a sense. I'm just being exaggerating to a bit, but... No, people collected these beautiful things to live with them, to look at them, to use them. Maybe not necessarily to use them because they became so valuable. That's why I'm saying it was art. The fact that they gave it back. So Dresden did a whole exhibition around the time we had our Provenance Research Exchange program, invited this, this granddaughter to be a part of our program. And it was just so moving to see so much reconciliation and commitment uh, and love of the object and the importance of the stories. I think is so important about this provenance research exchange program is not just the people who are directly participating in it as exchange 
professionals or the guest speakers or the locations, but the public programs that we have other places is educating people to the complexity of this work. Because there's this presumption now that museums are hiding things and that the Germans are trying not to give things back. And that's simply not the case. When the Washington Principles came out, museums very intensely searched their collections and put up online what they could, but it's ongoing work and it needs to be supported. There are so many people in Germany earnestly working on this. They are so excited to meet Americans that can help them piece this two sides of the story back together. And that connects with the public as well. Provenance researchers are very clever um, in that they, they meet more dead ends than not and the persistence to keep going forward. So often you're putting together a portfolio of knowledge that might not in the end prove the ownership of the object, but it might tell you the context. is produced by The Collaboratory, an initiative within the U.S. State Department's Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs, better known as ECA. My name's Christopher Wurst. I'm the director of The Collaboratory. 2233 is named for Title 22, Chapter 33 of the U.S. Code, the statute that created ECA. And our stories come from participants of U.S. government-funded international exchange programs. This week, Jane Malash talked about the profound impact of exchanges in her life, including her Fulbright exchange in Germany. For more about Fulbright and other ECA exchange programs, check out eca.state.gov. We encourage you to subscribe to 2233, leave us a nice review while you're at it, and we'd love to hear from you. You can write to us at ecacollaboratory at state.gov. That's E-C-A-C-O-L-L-A-B-O-R-A-T-O-R-Y at state.gov. Photos of each week's interviewee and complete episode transcripts can be found at our webpage at eca.state.gov slash 2233. And check us out and follow us on Instagram at 2233stories. Special thanks this week to Jane for sharing her stories. I did the interview and edited this segment. Featured music was Saying Goodbye in the Rain by Jill Sonic, Minutes by Blue Dot Sessions, Long Ago and Far Away by the Chet Baker Quartet, Liebestraum by Ike Quebec, and I'll Be Right Behind You, Josephine, instrumental version by Josh Woodward. Music at the top of this episode was Quatrefoil by Poddington Bear, and the end credit music is Two Pianos by Tagirlius. Until next time.